0: Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are talking about the rising volume and the complexity of cyber attacks, as well as diving into the mindset of the hackers behind them. With me today is Chris Weissopel, entrepreneur, computer security expert, and co founder and CTO of Veracode in beautiful Burlington, Massachusetts. Chris is an expert in hacking, and his work focuses on developing solutions for source code security analysis. As one of the original software vulnerability researchers at the hack think tank called Loft, way back in the 90s, Chris was the first to raise the alarm about insecure software. He is one of the authors of Loft Crack, the Windows Password Auditing Program, and the author of Netcat for Windows, an open source security tool. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Ann. So, Chris, cyber attacks are now targeting everything from corporate intellectual property to critical infrastructure to even our democratic elections. Can we talk a little bit about the changing stakes of these hacks and just who the threat actors are? Can you sort them into a few categories in terms of what the actors are after and the types of attacks and how you think about them?
1: Yeah, sure. To me, you know, things have changed over time as we've relied on software to do more and more. If you think about sort of the last 20 years, what software is being used for, um, it just becomes something that is easier and easier for attackers to either monetize or, you know, manipulate information to their end goals because just more and more targets. You know, when I started doing this, it was like, it was like the government and banks in the nineties. And now it's really every single person, right? Every single business, whether it's a hospital or political dissidents, the organizations and people are all dealing with software, right? They're dealing with, with software and computers that have valuable data. You know, attackers have a lot of things to target. I think, you know, one of the major categories that has always been there is is the the criminal element from you know a a small few person operation to big organized crime. The criminal element is constantly trying to figure out how to monetize attacks. The big common one was credit cards or other PII that could be used for identity theft. But over time, we've seen attacks use uh, ransomware techniques to monetize. Uh, hold people's data hostage until they pay you. Or we see people installing crypto miners to use up people's uh, c- CPU power and electricity or you know, cloud computing time in order to monetize. So that, that criminal element has has always been there, but it's really grown over time. The other element, which is not totally new, but a little newer than the criminal element, I think is the nation state attacker. We didn't really hear much about this back in 98 when I testified before the U.S. Congress about the state of U.S. government security. We were really thinking basically hacktivists, people who are hacking for fun or to send a message to the government, or of of course, criminals who would steal all the PII or other valuable data the government might have. It was interesting during the hearing, Senator Thompson, who was the uh, chairman, said, now, what would happen if one of the U.S.'s adversaries had the skills that you gentlemen have? What would happen? And it was interesting because we thought about it and we said, you know, we really haven't thought a lot of, you know, hacking tools and techniques in the hand of a nation state, but that was back in 98. There might've been something going on, but it wasn't anything near the level today where we see countries like China and Russia, North Korea, Iran being pointed at as the perpetrators of of attacks, whether it's ddosing banks, you know, embarrassing a movie studio, stealing valuable data from the office of management and budget, it's the nation state attacker has really been another one on the rise. So now we have two things to look for. The, you know, the other category, I guess, I would put out there is that is the, the the hacktivist, and this kind of comes and goes. You know, I think we've all heard of Anonymous, and for a while, for a year or two, this group of LulzSec was you know hacking sites just to poke fun at companies or to you know just send a, a political message so i think those are the three categories that i think about when i think about attackers and you know what they're going after but you know as a security professional i think it's really important that you need a baseline of security to start with before you even start thinking about what attackers would be going after me and and so i think that becomes something that once you become good at basic security and you might have some sophisticated attackers, then you can start thinking about the adversaries and how you would behave differently or secure your systems differently based on who you think your attackers are.
0: So Chris, you said a lot, and I just wanna I wanna maybe pull a few threads and go a little deeper. One of the things that you talked about, and I've noticed in recent trends, is we haven't heard as much of the hacktivists, right? As you said, they kind of come and go, those embarrassment type hackers. Do you have a point of view as to why maybe they've been quieter? Is it that they've actually been quieter or is it that we're just so focused on nation state actors right now and ransomware and those types of attacks that we're just not paying attention? To?
1: It might be a little bit of that, but I, I think what happened was, you know, an Anonymous and LulzSec, which sort of an offshoot of Anonymous, kind of rose to prominence five or six years ago. And then starting a couple years ago, we started to see a lot of arrests, a lot of convictions, people going to jail. And I I think that put a chilling effect on it. I I think when Anonymous first rose up, people felt like they were untouchable, you know, and they could hide their tracks. And the government law enforcement wasn't sophisticated enough to find them. And um, as we saw a lot of these actors go to jail, that I think there was definitely a, a chilling effect on it. I don't. I don't think it's ever going to go away. But I think people have seen that they're. They. It's. It's a little harder to hide on the internet than people originally thought.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I want to go a little different direction. I want to talk specifically about some government security things, and, and particularly about election security, because it's something that. Microsoft thinks an awful lot about it, as you know. I know a lot of eyebrows went up. I think it was in um, 2018 when an 11-year-old at DEF CON hacked a Florida voting machine in less than five minutes. And we do know that a lot of the voting machines are on really legacy systems, things like Windows CE and even older than that. Do you have thoughts on, you know, how vulnerable our election systems are, and thoughts on, you know, what could be done to improve them? We all see the same types of things in the news. But I would love from your expert point of view, especially thinking back to that 1998 hearing. Right, what we can and should be doing right now.
1: Yeah, so I, I think the biggest the biggest issue with voting machines is, you know, the customers of these voting machines and the and the election management systems, which are even more complicated, which tally the votes and collect the votes and set the poll, you know, ballot questions and things like that. You have to think like I'm the customer and I need to hold my vendor accountable to delivering on what they say they will. Because this is really uh, a supply chain issue where the local counties that run the elections and Buy the equipment, and sometimes it's specified by the uh, attorney general or the secretary of state, or there's an organization in, in the state government that might specify them. But at the end of the day, they need to hold the vendors accountable to what they're expecting as far as security of those devices and systems. So for me, uh, it, it's not much different than you know someone taking you know, acceptance of a piece of equipment and making sure it passes all the functional and safety tests, right? You're getting what you paid for. I don't think anyone thinks they're getting, you know, voting machines that can be, you know, tampered with and the votes changed. That's certainly not in the in the specification. So I I would say that the most important thing is for the, the customers of these machines to have third party independent testing and send those findings if there's any insecurities back to the vendors and say, we found this old vulnerability because you're using an old version of software on this device. I mean, some of these things, they're still shipping with with old versions of software that have vulnerabilities in them or they're not updating them. They're not, they're not maintaining them. It's sort of a standard IT security problem. It's just, it's all concentrated in these very important systems that we all know attackers are going for. So it's, it's kind of a, the perfect sort of petri dish for trying to figure out how to uh, purchase secure systems and, and, and maintain them in a secure manner. The thing that frustrates me about all this is it's all wrapped up in politics, right? That the people that are funding these things or putting standards in place, I see a lot of stuff going on that's not on the technical merits. It's basically people are posturing and trying to make points, political points about election security and the need for it or the need to not worry about it or how to go about it. You know, that's frustrating as a security professional that that sort of the political concerns overwhelm the technical issues, so things just things just don't get done.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I, by the way, I'm right there with you. And I think that takes us into a couple places to talk deeper about two things. Um, and let's talk about them separately. One is the ransomware attacks against state and local government agencies, and and things like technical debt and systems. Would love to have your thoughts around that. And then the other thing would be infrastructure security. But let's talk about ransomware a little bit. And you know, state and local governments, in my experience, are ill-equipped, right? Because they have a lot of technical debt. They don't always have the right funding mechanisms and they have a hard time recovering. So again, you know, proactive advice for them, you know, how, how can we reduce the amount of ransomware attacks we're seeing and make it so it's expensive for those actors to launch those attacks?
1: You know, I almost brought that up as something that makes, worries me about, you know, the, the, the election systems is if ransomware is that easy for state and local government, wait a minute, those are the people that are and the organizations that are running the, the voting equipment. Yeah, it's a bad, it's a bad indicator right of, of of what we should expect, you know, when you see ransomware running so rampant in even you know major cities like Baltimore and, and Atlanta, you have to really realize that the attackers are just going for the the easiest targets right the, the The whole idea is what which target can I get the most money out of for the easiest effort right that's That's constantly the calculation that's going on in the the ransomware actor's head, right. They've exposed that our cities and towns and, and states are really ill-equipped and to uh, really secure their systems once they have a serious attacker. They, sort of their threat model was, you know, who's going to attack a small city? Who's going to attack a hospital or a public school system, right? And I think a lot of justification for not spending on security is why would anyone attack me? Right. That's that's constantly what I hear often is like no one will really attack me. But with ransomware, what we see is they're not attacking you because they want to steal your data, because you know, a a public school system, for example, not very exciting data, you know, could be monetized. But ransomware is a new monetization technique that allows attackers to attack places that the data might not be that valuable to them. And the aspect of new monetization techniques really changes the threat landscape so that new organizations are at risk, which means they have to really quickly change their security posture, right? They have to really quickly become more secure. And cities and towns are scrambling to do this now. My advice would be start with the base. I think everyone's probably doing you know, anti-phishing throughout their organizations. But, you know, that's only going to be effective so far. You know, you're always going to have a new person coming on board or adversaries are really, really sophisticated in tricking people. While I think anti-phishing education is good, the technical controls in place, the most important one is good backup systems, right? So really good backup systems. If you're Security policy can tolerate it. Cloud backup systems are great, especially for smaller organizations because you don't have any infrastructure. So that's, that's really where you, you know, limiting running your, your Windows domain or whatever your authentication system is. Securing that's limiting lateral movement through the organization. A hospital, for instance, doesn't need, you know, anyone but the pharmacist to maybe access the online pharmacy system. But if every nurse's station can access that, someone's tricked into clicking on something, well, all of a sudden your hospital's pharmacy is shut down. So, you know, compartmentalizing information and good backups, I think, is, is really the, the key places to start. I guess the third factor, authentication. That's not going to work in all cases, but especially for the higher risk activities, you know, people in your finance department, things like that, you, you want to, certainly for your system administrators, you want them to using uh, two-factor, even if you can't roll it out to every user of your system.
0: We're going to wrap, but I want to ask you a question as we wrap. So I saw, and you may may have, I assume you saw this, but it was over the holiday, that DHS announced recently that they were going to be having a mandatory vulnerability disclosure for different federal agencies and some sharing. Have you taken a look at that initial announcement? Do you have any thoughts about how it's all going to help us as a security community be better?
1: Yes, I'm very excited about this, actually, because a lot of commercial organizations have vulnerability closure policies or coordinated disclosure policies, but it's far and few between in the government. I know the Pentagon you know, has a bug bounty program, so obviously they need that. But people are attacking the government constantly that are nation-state actors or criminals. Why not have, you know, the good guys, the White Hats, be able to do the same thing if they're going to report those issues? But I think the White Hats are really afraid to, say, attack DHS and look for vulnerabilities because now it seems like you could be potentially be committing crimes against people with lots of legal resources. So I, I think especially because you know, sort of being a white hat is something that there's a much bigger chilling effect around that the I, I'm, I'm very excited that DHS and just the federal government in general might be having some standardized disclosure policies where they're just making it clear that um, it, it's okay to report coordinated vulnerability disclosure, just being a standard organization that's connected to agree on. If the government is doing it, it'll just kind of push that along. So um, hopefully a few years from now, it'll just be something that everyone just does, matter-of-factly.
0: Well, Chris, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, Is there any final thought you have for the audience? Um, Anything you want to make sure that people leave here with?
1: Yeah, I think I touched on it a little bit. You know, supply chain security is really an important lever to securing the entire ecosystem. And I think the best way for us to sort of make, you know, software and hardware more secure in general is customers that have buying power like the federal government or big customers to you know, require their vendors or their service providers to meet certain levels of security and write that into contracts and make that happen. And I think that's the thing that can really make a difference going into the future so that we all sort of live in a more secure world.
0: Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day and stay warm up there in the Northeast. Thanks, Ann. This has been fun. Thank you so much to our audience for listening in. Please join us again next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea.
1: Please subscribe to Afternoon Cyber Tea on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One so you don't miss an episode. Make sure you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Thank you for listening, and join us next time for a new episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson of Microsoft.
0: This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and... Senior Security Researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.